Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hi, everyone. It's Anna. Thank you so much to those of you who've made donations to the show during the past few weeks. It means a lot to read the messages that you've sent along with them and to know that our listeners find value in the show that we make. If you haven't given yet, it's definitely not too late. In fact, now is a great time to give because the Tao Foundation has offered to double any contributions made to death, sex, and money before the end of 2016. Here's how to give. Text the letters DSM to the number 69866. Then just click the link that we text back to you or go to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. We've got big plans for 2017 and we can't wait to make them happen with your help. Thank you so much. I don't like talking about money with you. Really? Really. This makes me very uncomfortable. You're one of the people who's supposed to be really comfortable <laughs> doing this. Yeah, Where's our hope, Sally? <laughs> I never talk about my money. You know, I, it's like, I'm very comfortable talking about other people's money. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Let me tell you something, buddy. Everybody's lost someone. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Trust you? I don't even know your last name. And need to talk about more. I don't know what just happened there, but you're going to sit down and give us a shot to win our money back. I'm Anna Sale. I talked to Sally Krawcheck a few months ago, right when I was at peak financial stress. With the cost of a move, Bay Area housing, childcare, and all the other expenses that come with a new baby. On top of the anxiety is the the sleep deprivation, which is increasing the anxiety. Yeah. Mm. There's nothing worse than like waking <sighs> up in the middle of the night when the baby is sleeping and mm. just being like, oh, no, that's I bad. Really that's be bad. Right now. That's bad. <laughs> I wanted to talk to Sally because she specializes in financial planning specifically for women. She launched an investing company called Elvest earlier this year. Before that, Sally was an investment banker, an equities analyst, and a top executive at a number of banks, including Citigroup and Bank of America. So Sally has this tough, unflappable air of a woman who has come up through the ranks on Wall Street. You know, I I don't embarrass that easily. I one time I was on CNBC with Maria Bartiromo, and they made me walk across the the stage to get to her, and I tripped, and she <laughs> caught me, and and it was in front, of, it was live TV, and I just remember thinking, you know, I'm remarkably not embarrassed about this. 
Sally says that attitude helped when she was fired from Citigroup in 2008, right in the middle of the financial crisis. I didn't think, oh, I'm so humiliated. I've been fired. I'm on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. You know, there there were a lot of negative emotions, but humiliation wasn't one of them. Sadness, the feeling I could have done better, the feeling I failed. I felt bad to the people who I was working with because I was leaving them. And that was tough for me, that sense of I'm leaving you there. Um, And, you know, I'm not there to help. Money has always been a charged topic in Sally's life, going back to when she was a kid, growing up in Charleston, South Carolina. My parents are still married today. They are probably the two most in-love people I've ever known. And the only thing, the thing they fought about was money. And it was such a source of stress and anxiety in my life. Um, And for all of us, we would, as children, hide under the bed. Um, We would shake. We would quake. We felt bad about it. It was a really um, stressful and tense topic for us because we didn't have any. And you just knew once a month they were going to have a big fight and somebody was going to storm out of the house. And of course, as a little kid, you oh my gosh, they're never, never, never coming back. Who who would leave the house? Would it be your mom or your dad when they got mad? I think it went either way. Maybe they would take turns for it. But the message that I got from a young age is it wasn't a particularly happy topic um, and that uh, I, I wanted to make my own money. I did not want to have those fights with a spouse or be put in a position where I would be financially vulnerable. So Sally worked from a very young age. By the time she was in third grade, Sally was working in her dad's law office. I did all the filing for him and I was back there probably a year ago, and the file cabinets still have my handwriting on them from when I'd filed, you know, put away the files and arranged everything. But then I worked at the family clothing store, my grandfather's clothing store. Um, I babysat any place that I could be earning money, so much so that when our furnace broke, when I was in high school, my parents borrowed money from me to fix it. Really? Mm-hmm. Did your parents pay you back for the furnace? Break? They did. They did. In fact, in fact, they more than paid me back because they paid me back with interest so that I got to go on my first trip overseas. I went to Europe the next summer. You went to Europe with, with the earnings from mm-hmm. the interest from your parents. <laughs> That's right. Well, and all the hours of babysitting and all the hours of filing. And I just loved looking at my you know, savings account. I loved opening it and having that sense of, of I don't know, forward motion. So you would look at the balance mm-hmm. in the savings account? Mm-hmm. I do that. Mm-hmm. I, it gives me a sense of calm. Yeah, it's there. It's still there. It's growing. It's there. I'm okay. After high school, Sally attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she met the man who would become her husband. After graduating, they both moved to New York City. Sally got a job as a junior investment analyst, but still lived on a budget. I shared a bedroom with a friend. Was it with your boyfriend at the time? No. 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 Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Would not have flown with my parents. But there was a shared bedroom. I mean, you know. When you when you got married, did you sort of have the vision of a traditional marriage? No. I always no. knew I was going to work. And in fact, I think that's part of what broke the marriage down. Yes, there was an affair, um, but it was on the heels of 
my going to business school, so a few years in, and his career beginning to feel like it was plateauing. It didn't, but at the time, there had, you know, we'd had a performance review that didn't go as well as he'd hoped. And so it appeared as though I would be more successful than him, um, which I was totally fine with. I thought, well, great, you know, hey, okay, cool. Uh, and I believe he was less okay with. Do you remember a moment when you realized this marriage might not work? Oh, you know, when I said, hey, are you cheating on me? And he said no. And then I said, no, are you? And he said no. And then I started, I turned away. And then I said, I'm going to ask you one more time. And then his exact words were, you're going to be mad. And, and actually, I was. I was, I was fairly angry. <laughs> He said, you're, you're going, going to, to be, be mad. mad. <laughs> <laughs> nail, you hit the nail. You know, I am. I'm actually angry. I'm angry. But it was terrible. I'm five foot six, and I went down to 108 pounds. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it that I thought that this was the person for me for the rest of my life. What did you learn about money through going through a divorce? Habit. When you're reeling from um, a break to a relationship, that's a really bad time to try to figure out how to manage your money. Did you? So you were a graduate of business school, and you were not managing your own finances. That's correct. I knew vaguely how much we had, um, but it was it was a, an eye opener. And I, I thought it's not that. It's not that I didn't know. It's that I, I wasn't in control of it. I didn't feel like I had my two feet under me. Were you open that your that your husband had had an affair when you were getting divorced immediately, or is that something that feels more comfortable to talk about now? No, he asked me not to. He he. Um, we agreed that it was private between the two of us and that we were not going to say the reason for it. Um, and that, in hindsight, was probably a mistake because people will form their own conclusions about what happened, and um, sometimes they're not the right conclusions. Um, so I was left, you know, having to, to keep that part of the hurt inside, and I wouldn't do that again. So was part of it, part of the story then, here's Sally with this emerging high-powered career and her marriage is falling apart and she's leaving him behind kind of thing? Could have been. Could have been. You know, it's funny because I remember at the time hearing that somebody had said that I was ambitious. It was a bad thing. You know, I'm like, well, yes, I, I actually am ambitious. When did you start to feel comfortable and say, you know what, I'm going to tell people what happened. I'm going to be open about this. On the divorce, it was a few years later. And now I tell it. <laughs> so, but actually, I did sort of keep it quiet for a while. And then pre-internet era when I was running Smith Barney, I was at a client event and somehow the topic of divorce and money came up. And I, I started to tell the story and I never told it publicly. And it ended up in the friggin' newspaper the next day. And I think he called me and said, hey – you know, maybe we could not talk about it. I said, well, you know, if you didn't want me to talk about it, you shouldn't have done it. Where did you meet your current husband? Oh, at work, naturally. <laughs> my, 
Did he you actually, work alongside each other? He he was more senior than I was, but I will say that one of the things that was interesting has been interesting about our marriage is that because he was more senior than I was, there probably was there never was going to be that sense of co- you know comparing ourselves to each other as there was in in the first marriage. Did you discuss money in a different way before your second marriage? Definitely, definitely. Um, and we talked for a period of time about having a prenup. Uh, and made the decision not to, um, you know, which can be a very personal decision. Do, do you remember why it felt uncomfortable to do a prenup? Oh, I'll tell you exactly why, because it felt like we were negotiating a divorce before we got married. And it just, ugh, ugh, ugh. Sally and her husband had two kids, and Sally kept moving up in finance jobs. In 2002, she became the CEO of Smith Barney, the wealth management company. And so my husband then and and now um, offered to move into sort of a semi-part-time position at his company so that he could be spend more time with their younger family while I had to be more focused on work. How old were your kids at that point? How old were they? They pro- they were they were in single digits. Um, so probably six and eight. Little. Yeah, just they starting were school. They were young. Did you ask your husband to do that, or did he volunteer? I, I don't recall, um, but it was part of an ongoing conversation. But I do remember one night, about six months in. Coming home and my my our son Jonathan, we were both in the in the bedroom and you know how you mm-hmm. you do that you get home you start to strip off the you start, strip off the work clothes I mean the door barely closes and off come the high heels and you know I'm switching into the sweatpants and our son came in the room and said mommy um, I'm just not seeing enough of you and I, I remember I said thank you Jonathan for sharing that with me and. Um, Daddy and I are going to talk about this. And he left the room, and I closed the door. And I remember Gary turned to me, my husband, and said, well, what are you going to do about this? And I said, no, 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 no. What are we going to do about this? Mm. You know, how are we going to figure this out? Um, And, you know, is there a way we can get more of me? But is there a way we can get more of you too? Um, Because as you read through the lines, it was, I need more parent. And you're CEO of Smith Barney. You know it. Coming up, the financial crisis hits, and Sally loses her job. It just feels like everything's coming down around us. And I, I don't think anybody in the industry, even to today, recognize the amount of hurt and anger. Our last episode was all about porn, why some of you enjoy it, and why others of you have cut it out of your lives completely. Some of you had some pretty strong reactions to the episode. Ruby Beth tweeted that she found herself screaming when she heard James's story about his problem with porn and why his wife now gets a weekly report on his internet browsing. And a listener named Etienne asked, how is watching porn any worse than playing solitaire? He wrote, we should all embrace porn as a vehicle for people to relieve themselves of their sexual tension. We also got a voice memo from a listener who said the episode made her think about why she enjoys reading erotica much more than watching porn. It just seems so fake. I don't really feel like those women are acting genuine. And maybe they are, and that's just me being judgmental, but... It feels like it's very male-centric. 
She says she feels more thoughtful about her sexuality when she reads erotica. But she admitted she doesn't always have time to be thoughtful. I mean, when I have a 15-minute window and I don't have any kids to juggle and I actually have some time to myself, trust me, I am more than capable of pulling up some porn on my phone and doing what I got to do to make it happen in 15 minutes. We also heard from a lot of you that it felt like porn was taking over your podcast feed on the week our episode came out. Our friends at the Advice podcast Dear Sugar did a two-part series all about porn. Hosts Cheryl Strayed and Steve Allman took some of their listeners' questions about porn and relationships. It's a really interesting conversation. Definitely check that out. On the next episode, I talk with Bex, whom I first met in our near-death episode and talked about his suicide attempt. This time, his mom came along, too. I was a demon child. He suffered a lot. And that makes me sound like I'm fucking Jesus. Like, I, I just... <laughs> you were suffering a lot, and yeah, it was awful. Yeah, it was tough. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. In 2008, as the housing bubble burst and spread throughout the financial system, Sally Krawcheck was the head of Citigroup's entire wealth management unit. It was a, I mean, full-time, full night. You know, what's going to happen next? How can we get in front of it? What kind of information can we give it to people? Were you expecting to be fired? Yep. I knew it. I, I knew it. Look, the truth is... You don't go up against the CEO of the board and keep your job. Let's face it. I mean, <laughs> not a lot of rules in business, but that's a pretty, you know, that rule is pretty steadfast. Here's what happened. Two hedge funds that Citigroup recommended plunged in value. The problem was they were sold as low risk. 
people who thought they were making a conservative investment stood to lose almost everything. That led to infighting within Citigroup. The people above Sally said the clients should have understood the risks. Sally disagreed. And my entire argument was that we should partially reimburse clients. And this is best not only for the clients and the relationship, but for the long-term health of the business. And the answers I kept getting back were, hey, they should read the fine print. And, you know, this quarter is so important. We, we can't, you know, flub this quarter. And I had a new boss at the time. And he wouldn't even look at me in the meetings. He was, you could tell, just so mad. And as happens, you know, I lost my job a a few months later. How did you talk to your children about money during that time? You know, I'm not sure that we did. Um, We were, you know, we told the kids we were okay. Um, You know, that mom got fired. Mom got reordered out, but we're we're okay as a family. I think it, the conversations were that that straightforward. Do your kids like to spend money? My daughter enjoys spending some money. Yes, she does. How did you how how did you approach <laughs> that as a parent, having being in a different financial position than your parents were? Allowances. How did you figure out? Oh no 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 no. These, these kids um, have allowances. These kids work for their allowances. They've got chores they have to do around the house. They work in the summer. You know, my son um, at one point overcharged on one of my credit cards, spent more money than he was allowed to, um, and had to work as a uh, bagging in a supermarket in order to pay me back. Um, So it was important for us that the kids understand the value of money and that money doesn't come without work. Well, let let me pivot to asking you about sort of where I am in this moment of being a new parent, buying a house in a very expensive housing market, trying to figure out how to how it's all going to work out, not only on a month-to-month basis, but then sort of what the big picture is and what the, the vision is. And I'm finding myself feeling really, I mean, it's a daily conversation with my husband. I feel very uncomfortable with the amount of money that we have to spend to meet these new obligations because I was a renter and not a parent just a few months ago, you know. So, like, I know that the advice is, is you know, spend below your means. Mm-hmm. There are also moments in life, though, where you have to dig in and invest in different ways. Mm-hmm. So how do you – just if you – how do you advise me on dealing with the emotions that come up with that? <laughs> <laughs> Money and emotion, should, we, we should try to split them in two. Um, and I always find, you know, sitting down with a pencil and a calculator and a piece of paper um, have always been helpful to me. You know, you and I talked earlier about when we were little, we like to look at the savings account and, okay, I've got money there. I'm feeling calmer. I um, keep a Excel spreadsheet on my computer where I keep track of what, uh, you know, what my net worth is. And that makes me feel better. I, I kind of love that you have, it's as simple as an Excel spreadsheet on your computer. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Have you had this same spreadsheet that you've been doing with for many years? <laughs> years and years and years. Do you have any money worries now? Don't we all? Um, I worry that, so I have not made any money. So Back up. Nobody needs to worry about me. 
okay? Nobody needs to worry about me um, for one single second. During the crisis, so many people lost money. And in fact, you know, my net worth was cut. Certainly, the, the majority of it was, was wiped out. Um, I worked at City. City stock went from 53 to less than one. You can do, you know, this is my largest asset. You can do the math. Nobody needs to feel sorry for me. I recognize how very, very, very fortunate I am. I have not earned money um, in a long time because I've been starting businesses. And so I do have that, am I going to run out? Am I going to be a bag lady? And then I look at it logically and say, nope, you know, we're, we're going to be fine. But I, I, I don't almost don't know of a woman I've ever spoken to who doesn't have that sense of will I, will I run out? So I, I fret about that. The thing about money mm-hmm. is it's all relative. Mm-hmm. Does it feel awkward sometimes for you to be reaching out to women when you yourself have had such a different experience with money than the vast majority of women in America? Not at all. Um, I, first of all, the part of it that felt awkward for so long um, was when people told me, you should start an investing business for women. And my reaction always was, well, women don't need anything different from the guys. So just stop it. What are you going to dumb it down? You're going to make it, you know, Sherbert? No. Um, Sherbert. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to make me have a pink logo. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) It's going to be cute. And we're going to use girl language. When I began to recognize that women, um, women's salaries tend to peak in their 40s. If they have a college education, men's peak in their 60s. Women live longer than men. Neither of these things have been taken into account by the industry in planning for women and in investing for women, but they're very, very important. If you're in some way saying that, oh, Sally, you've been fortunate in your life and you know, you've know you made money in your life, so you should go sit down at home and shut up and not start a new business, quite the opposite. And to say, well, you know what? I've been lucky because I made some money. I'm not going to do anything about it is ridiculous. Quite the opposite. So you heard me saying you should not talk to people. You should go home and, and enjoy your money and not reach out. <laughs> I heard something I didn't like. <laughs> There's something in there I didn't like that I reacted to. I'm not quite sure what it was now, but dang it, Anna, no. Well, I I can understand how that's how that might have sounded. Um, but I, I, I do wonder about like when money is so hard to talk about. Mm-hmm. And when I asked you about what the lesson was after your divorce about money was you've got to have it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so much shame that that can trigger. Yeah. Like, well, I didn't have money when I got divorced, and here's this woman telling me I should just have money. Like, you know, I got to tell like, you, this whole conversation, I'm starting to pit out. I'm beginning to pit out. Just the, you know, what's been so fascinating for me, the, you know, that you have made the point that I have made money in my life, which I have, isn't it interesting I had to come back and tell you that I also lost a lot of money in my life as if, I, as if I'm apologizing for it. It's funny. You've made me feel quite defensive. I, I'm, I, I'm sorry. That's okay. I, I think that's what – I think we're hitting on what's difficult. Yeah. 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 It's not that I feel unladylike. I just – I don't know. I do recognize – it's a weird topic for us. It's part of what I'm trying to change by normalizing it. Um, but I also recognize that some portion of it, look, 
you know, I nobody works has worked harder than I have. And, you know, we didn't talk about it when the kids were little. As soon as they were asleep, I was back writing research reports. I mean, I I, I worked and worked and worked. But some part of it is is just complete good fortune. My parents, where we started, were taking out loans to give their children this leg up in life. Other people didn't have that. You know, the kids down the street didn't necessarily have that. And those things built up such that the money I was able to earn was some portion because of hard work, but some very good portion because of luck. And I think that's the thing that makes us feel um, weird. Uh huh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, and it's hard also to figure out how to talk about it with friends because oh, you don't possible. Yeah, figuring out how to find the context where it doesn't feel like you're impossible, um, right? A privileged complainer or someone who's coming, you know, uh, well, and Debbie Downer. And for women too, you're there's sort of this sense of you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you're making too, you know, if you're making a lot of money, that feels weird, particularly if you're making more than your spouse and if you're making more than your friends. But if you're not making enough money. And that's bad too. You know, somehow you failed. Yeah. So either way, there, there's a very, very thin razor's edge of what feels like the right amount, except you don't know what that, what that, where that is. But it is, it is interesting how awkward it is to talk about it, even though I talk about it in the abstract every day. That's Sally Krawcheck. She's the CEO of Elvest, and she has a book out next month. It's called Own It, The Power of Women at Work. After our conversation, I wanted to make sure I understood what she meant by pit out. Things got so tense in that moment that I didn't ask. According to Urban Dictionary, it means when you sweat so much that your clothing becomes visibly wet. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. The team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Thank you to our interns from this fall, Ali Lesperance and Rich Renalik. We wish you the best in your next adventures. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. And subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll get to hear from other listeners, see what we're working on on the show, and find out what other podcasts we're listening to. The new year is approaching, and we're celebrating with some of our favorite listens from all of 2016. That'll be in a newsletter coming up. Just go to deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter to subscribe or text the word newsletter to 69866. One more thing Sally told me to think about as a new parent, writing a will. She said she did that soon after her first child was born. Because I was at the time terrified to fly and ended up on a plane right after he was born without him and so immediately got a will thereafter. You were feeling your mortality. There's a lot of liquid involved. (laughs) Alcohol? No, sweating and crying. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Anna Sale and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 